Hello, everyone. Well, it is such a great privilege uh, to join you for this Sunday and to be um, able to share with you and to teach um, from God's Word. I'm grateful to Pastor Chris for the invitation, grateful for the ministry of ARPC, a church I've known of for many years. I know many people who've passed through your doors and been blessed, equipped, edified. Um, so thank you um, for all that you're doing. Um, our topic today is is common misconceptions about singleness. Um, and this may sound like a, a kind of a niche kind of issue, something that is only relevant for, for one subsection of the church family and that perhaps uh, something the rest of us don't need to think about. But I want to begin just by sharing a couple of thoughts on why this is something the whole church needs to be in on and um, attentive to. Um, here's the first reason, and it's a slightly morbid one. But the reality is that at least half of you who are married will one day be single again, whether that's through the pain of divorce or through the, the pain of bereavement. Um, the fact is many people who are married now will one day be single again. So marriage now is no guarantee that you will not have to think about singleness once again in the future. And in fact, the best time to think about singleness is, is before it is thrust upon you in a very painful kind of situation or circumstance. So for that reason alone, those of you who are married do need to know what the Bible says about singleness. But more than that, that the Bible shows us that the church is a body. We're integrated. We're interdependent. Uh, Paul makes it very clear in, in 1 Corinthians 12 that what happens in one part of the body affects everybody else. It affects the other parts. We know that from real life. If I stub my toe, which I manage to do very often, um, it's not just my toe that responds. The rest of my body reacts. I might yelp or make a noise. My eyes might water. I might instinctively grab my foot or hop on one leg. The whole body joins in the reaction because the whole body is affected. It's not just my toe hurts, I hurt. And so it is in the body of Christ. Um, all of us have a stake in the spiritual well-being and flourishing of one another. As a single person, I have a stake in the marriages in my church being healthy. And those of you who are married, you have a stake in the singles in your church being able to flourish in their singleness. Because if they nosedive, that's going to hurt everyone. If one part suffers, the whole body hurts. And then one additional reason is that all the passages that talk about singleness, and we're going to dive into one or two of those in just a moment, are addressed to the whole church. So even in 1 Corinthians 7, which we're about to look at, where Paul specifically says, now to singles I say this, he is still expecting the rest of the church family to listen in. They need to know what God through Paul is saying to the single people. And so it is with this. All of us who are, are married need to know what God's word says to single people. You need to know what your single friends are being told by God because you need to know how to help them and to honour them and to encourage them. So the whole church needs to get in on making sure we've understood singleness well. And my contention is today that I think, sadly, in many areas of the church, 
we have not understood the Bible's teaching about singleness. It often comes to us actually as a bit of a surprise. Um, there are a lot of misconceptions about singleness. Now, misconceptions are, are, are common in lots of areas of life. Um, I remember uh, reading that um, apparently Earth has more than one moon. Um, there are apparently other natural objects orbiting the planet that scientists classify as being within the category of a moon. So again, there's a, a misconception of sorts. I don't know what to, th to think of that. I think I'm probably still going to say there's one moon. But there are lots of things that we think we know, but we actually don't. And I want to suggest that is particularly the case with the Bible's teaching about singleness. It is almost overwhelmingly negative that what we think we know about singleness is negative. And the Bible gives us a very different perspective. It's not hard to see why we would be set up for a negative view of singleness. Um, for Christians, if we're not married, our obligation to the Lord is to be sexually inactive. And so by singleness, we, we actually mean celibacy, uh, which sounds like a word from Downton Abbey, um, because we don't really have a contemporary category of voluntary sexual inactivity, particularly among unmarried people. And so there's a cost to singleness if you're a Christian that may not be the case for those who are not Christian. Uh, Non-Christians may think, well, being single means I'm not married. It doesn't mean I can't be romantically involved and sexually active and those sorts of things. But for the Christian, if we're single, we're not only unmarried, Actually, we believe there shouldn't be any kind of sexual behavior between us and anybody else before we are married. So let's have a look at some of these misconceptions. We'd love to know how they land on um, you guys and, and the context you're in. I'm sure there are many similarities between how people think in Singapore and how people think um, where I'm from over here. So here's the first misconception. It's a kind of general one. Um, that, that, that includes some of the other ones. That is that singleness is bad for you. Singleness is just bad for you. That's the way we tend to think. Um, in secular culture, that is a no-brainer. If you're someone who is sexually um, inactive, that is seen as being unhealthy. There are comedy movies about people who have to try to abstain from sexual activity for a given length of time, and the very premise of having to do so is comedic. Um, you may remember The 40-Year-Old Virgin, um, a big movie from about 10 years ago starring Steve Carell. Again, you don't need to know anything other than the title to know that it's a comedy. Um, to be 40 years old and still a virgin is seen as a joke. Um, and if the world doesn't think it's laughable, it thinks it's harmful. And so there is a serious belief that many people have um, in the world today, which is that without sex, you can't really experience what it means to be truly human. Um, our sense of personhood, we tend to think in today's culture, is directly attached to our sex life. And so if you are being sexually inactive, you're actually harming yourself. You're not realizing your full humanity. You're not actually living a full life. But it's not just in our culture. In the church, we tend to think and, and behave and speak as if singleness is a bad thing. 
Um, I remember catching up with someone, I just ran into them, I haven't seen them for over 10 years, someone I had worked with in a, in a previous job. And I ran into this friend, we were catching up, and I said, I've not seen you for 10 years, we have a lot of news to catch up on. And I, I said to her, hey, what are your kids up to now? Because last time I saw you 10 years ago, they were teenagers, so that would put them in their late 20s now. What are they up to? How are they doing? And she started to fill me in on what her kids were doing. And she said, listen, um, so-and-so is now married and the other one's engaged. And she said, which means they're both sorted. And I remember thinking, sorted. Hmm. So what does that make people who aren't married, who aren't engaged? What does that make me as a single person? Am I unsorted? Am I kind of a loose end that, that needs to be tied up by someone and, and sort of resolved? That can often be the way we think in the church today, that, that someone who is single and a Christian just hasn't sort of fully graduated yet into mature Christianity. So let's right at the beginning remember that Jesus was single. Jesus did not get married. Jesus was not romantically involved with anyone. He was, didn't date. Jesus didn't have sex. And yet he was the most fully human person who ever lived. And so if we think being married is intrinsic or if we think being sexually fulfilled is intrinsic to leading a full human life, we're saying that Jesus wasn't really fully human. That leads us into all kinds of problems, as I'm sure you're aware. We, we're actually saying Jesus is subhuman, and that would make him a sub-saviour. But it's not just Jesus. Paul himself teaches actually some very surprisingly positive things about singleness. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, Paul writes in verse 28, um, he says, If you marry, you have not sinned. Okay, Paul believed this. That may sound obvious to us, um, that it's not a sin to get married. Paul was trying to say, actually, we have agency. We have choice. As Christians, that was a quite a radical thing. Um, you are free to marry. You are free not to marry. Paul is about to commend some of the reasons not to marry. But he wants you to know if you do marry, you're not being unspiritual. You're not sinning. But he does say, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, that's not the only thing Paul says about marriage. If that was the only thing Paul said, said about marriage, we might suspect he was a little bit bitter, um, that he was a little bit negative. Paul says some of the most beautiful things that have ever been written about marriage elsewhere in the New Testament. But he's also realistic, and so he says, if you marry, you will have worldly troubles. Some glorious blessings too, for sure. But there are worldly troubles that go along with being married. Uh, off the top of our heads, I'm sure we can think of some of what those might be. There are tensions within marriages. There can be the pains of divorce or separation or infidelity. There can be the pains of infertility. There can be the pains of children um, actually not making it. I know parents who've, who've lost children. There's the pain of children not walking in the ways of the Lord. There are any number of ways in which there can be troubles 
through being married. And so Paul says he wants to spare us that. He actually wants our lives to be less burdened, less complicated, so that we can actually be freed up to serve Christ. So marriage, Paul wants us to know, marriage does have its own unique set of problems that comes with it. Uh, We need to know that, particularly those of us who are single, because it's easy to think, well, singleness is difficult and marriage will solve all all of that difficulty. And it's very easy for us to compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage while forgetting there are ups of singleness and there are downs of marriage. So Paul continues, verse 32, I love this verse. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. I can think, great. (laughs) I want to be free from anxieties too. Thank you, Paul. How? Okay, Paul continues, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. So Paul is saying there's no, there's no completely anxiety-free kind of way forwards here. But Paul says if you're married, your interests are divided. You have more anxiety about worldly things. You've got more things on your plate, more concerns. You're being pulled in more directions. Whereas the unmarried man, Paul says, can be anxious about the things of the Lord. We can kind of be more focused in our lives. We can make sure our our concerns are primarily with the kingdom. Now, that is not to say that being married is unspiritual or kind of second best Christianity. That is not the case at all. Paul is making a practical point. There's a sense in which life is less complicated if you're single. And that less complexity can be used as a spiritual advantage. So Paul says in in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. Again, we've got freedom here. He says, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Um, the interests of the married man are divided, yet Paul says the unmarried person can be undivided in their devotion to the Lord. So here's, here's what we need to know about that. Singleness often is less complicated than marriage. Um, I'm single, I have just fewer constraints, it's just easier. I can do things at short notice. I can drop everything if if someone needs me. It's easier for me to make decisions and to to do things than if I was trying to factor in a whole family. But here's the point, though. Paul is saying the whole purpose of that kind of flexibility, that freedom, isn't to satisfy ourselves. It isn't so I can just do what I want to do when I want to do it in the way I want to do it. Paul is saying, actually, you know, the whole purpose of you being single is to be devoted to the Lord. In other words, Jesus is big enough and glorious enough and beautiful enough to take up your whole heart. He's the kind of saviour you can want to be fully devoted to. So Paul, again, he's he's saying he doesn't want to lay a restraint upon us. 
And that's the point. If we if we see the Christian life, if we see our obligations to Jesus simply as burdens, simply as hassles, we've probably not understood Jesus. Paul is dangling before us, if we're single, the prospect of undivided devotion to the Lord. Can you imagine that? Something that you want to give all of your devotion to. Paul is saying Jesus is that compelling, that wondrous. And so if we're single, we get, we get to be undivided in our devotion to Christ. Not we're supposed to be, we get to be. What a gift to us. Who wouldn't want that? So we can't say singleness is a bad thing if actually it frees us up to love Jesus in more focused ways than would be the case, perhaps if we were married. So that's the first misconception that singleness is bad for you. But the second misconception um, is, is no less significant than that. And that is that singleness is isolating. That often is the biggest fear for so many people about the prospect of singleness, particularly if some people are thinking, actually, they may be single for long term. One of the deepest fears is, I'm going to be on my own. I'm going to be lonely. I'm going to be isolated. I'm going to be cut off. I know people who've, who've got into really very unbiblical kinds of relationship because of this fear. They think, well, it's either disobeying God by being in a particular kind of relationship he forbids, or I'm just going to be on my own and I can't bear that. Friends, that is or should be a profound misunderstanding of singleness. And I want to think about this in two particular areas. The first is intimacy and how we think about intimacy. The second is, is family and how we think about family. So let's just consider the whole concept of intimacy. Uh, in much of, of the kind of secular world, the kind of culture you are in that I am in, we have so collapsed our understanding of sex and our understanding of intimacy into one another, that we find it very hard to conceive of any form of intimacy that isn't ultimately about sex. And so when we hear of people trying to articulate a deep intimacy with somebody else, we kind of nudge one another and go, yeah, they're obviously in a, in a relationship of some kind of sexual kind. We, we come across some historical account of, for example, soldiers feeling a, a profound bond and connection serving in a war together. And we kind of roll our eyes and say, oh, yeah, they were obviously gay because we don't have space in our way of thinking for forms of real intimacy, of genuine connection that are ultimately to do with sex. But that's a very recent way to think. It's a very, actually, it's a very Western way to think. And it's a profoundly unbiblical way to think. Uh, the Bible shows us you can be having a lot of sex and not really be experiencing intimacy. Uh, we see that in the lives of people like David and Solomon. I think one of the reasons David had such a screwed up view of women was because he was 
we know we, he was sleeping with so many women. Uh, when David says to Jonathan that his friendship means more to David than that than the love of a woman, I don't think it's because David was confused about his sexuality. I think it's because David was experiencing intimacy with Jonathan and hadn't been experiencing intimacy with his various partners and concubines and wives. Intimacy is the experience of being deeply known and deeply loved. You can have a lot of sex and not experience intimacy. Similarly, you can have a lot of intimacy that is nothing to do with sex. We see intimacy in the life of Jesus. We see him living with, doing life with the twelve, being quite candid with them. We see him particularly with the three, Peter, James and John. And then we're told in John's Gospel that John himself was unusually close to Jesus. John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We see them reclining together. There was intimacy there, but it was nothing to do with sex. The same is true of Paul. We often imagine Paul as being this sort of lone ranger, you know, apostle, church planter, kind of out there on his own heroically. And yet Paul's letters show us just how deeply embedded he was in the lives of other people. Uh, reading a chapter like Romans 16, it can look at first glance like it's the end credits of the letter to the Romans. And so we want to do the Netflix thing and just skip it. But the fact is that chapter shows us all the people that Paul was close to as he thought about his ministry in Rome. Paul was not on his own. In the, in the Bible, one of the, the main categories of intimacy is friendship. The Bible has a far richer view of friendship than we tend to today. We tend to think of friend and we think of you add someone to Facebook, um, add them to your your platform and, and they you've, you've added a new friend. But in the Bible, a friend is someone who knows your soul. A friend is someone who knows the inner you who knows what's really going on in your life, who knows what your heart is like. The book of Proverbs shows us you can't actually be wise in God's world without a friend. And here's a really incredible verse about friendship. It's friendship defined by Jesus himself. Okay, in John 15, verse 15, this is one of those verses. I don't think I would believe were it not actually there in the Bible in black and white. Um, it's an amazing verse. Jesus says to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. So Jesus is saying, listen, no longer do I call you servants. It's not that there's no aspect of our being servants of Jesus. That obviously is True that we are still his servants, but that's not the primary category in which Jesus now wants to place his disciples. He says, and the reason is we, we are servants, but we're not merely servants because servants don't know what the master's up to. You don't need to know. You just need to know what your job is. You don't need to know what the master's plans are or what he's thinking. But Jesus says, I've called you friends for and whatever Jesus says next is going to show us what Jesus believes friendship to consist in. Jesus says, I've called you friends because all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. 
So here's friendship, according to Jesus. Friendship is not simply familiarity. It's not simply the number of hours you accrue in someone else's company. It's not simply to do with shared hobbies and interests. Jesus says what makes friendship friendship is disclosure. Jesus says, I call you friends because all that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. I've let you in. In fact, I've, I've let you in the whole way. That makes us friends now. And that is what we need. We need people we can spill the beans to. We need people we can be truly honest with. We need people to know what's actually going on in our lives. Now, that's a vulnerable spot to be in because that inevitably means people knowing the mess, people knowing the crazy that, that we have within us. But what a joy to be known at that level. What a comfort. And actually what the New Testament shows us is if we have that kind of friend in Jesus, the one who lets us in and makes it safe for us to be fully known, if we have that kind of friend, we should now be that kind of friend. Jesus gives us that security. If Jesus knows all the worst things about me and still loves me, it's actually safe for me to let other people know who I am as well. Because I've got that security, that assurance of my, my relationship with Jesus. I wonder if if we take that view of friendship, the friendship has real disclosure. How many friends do you have? How many friends actually know the real you and what's actually going down in your life? Bob says you, you need people like that. All of us do. But then I also wanted to think about not just the concept of intimacy. Friendship is a wonderful form of intimacy, but we need to rethink what we mean about family. Because, again, the New Testament gives us a, a more expansive view of family, just as it does with friendship. Uh, we tend to think very often in, in church life that the family is, you know, your spouse, your two or three kids and throw in a pet of some kind. That's the family, that's the basic unit in which, which church life is done. I and mean, when you've got your little family unit, you kind of pull up the drawbridge, lock the door, and that's who you do life with. But the New Testament repeatedly insists that the church is a family, that there should be a lovely mix and blend and intermingling of the blood family, the, the biological family, the nuclear family that many of us will have, and the, the wider spiritual family that Jesus has folded us into. So in 1 Timothy, um, Paul is talking to Timothy about you know, the dynamics of, of the local church. Timothy's a pastor there. And he says in chapter 5, he says, treat older men as fathers. Treat older women as mothers. Treat younger men as brothers and younger women as sisters. So Paul is saying to Timothy, don't just treat your church family 
as family, but kind of distant family. He doesn't say treat older men as uncles or great uncles. <laughs> he doesn't say treat younger men as, you know, maybe distant cousins that you recognize their face, but you can't quite remember their name and you don't really know what they're up to. He says, no, treat one another, not just as family, but as close family, mothers and brothers, sisters, fathers. That is what we're to be to one another. Um, Psalm 68 says that God puts the lonely in families, which is, is nice and it's very easy for us to read a verse like that and think, oh, that's, that's really cool that God does that. I love that about God. It is really cool that God does that. We should love that about him. But we need to realize that we are the families in which God is placing the lonely. At ARPC, you are a family to those who don't have a family. That is part of your calling as a church. Again, 1 Timothy, Paul refers to the church in chapter 3. Um, he talks about the church being the pillar and, and buttress or foundation of the truth. And he talks about the church being the household of God. This is in, in 1 Timothy 3.15. Uh, we're familiar with how the church is a sort of buttress and, and bulwark of, of, of the truth because the, the church is there to uphold the truth and to hold it forth to a world that really needs to hear it. But the church is also God's household. It's God's family. And I want to suggest those two images very much go together. We will not find ourselves being an effective pillar and foundation of the truth if we're not actually being a household and a family to one another. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin, who's a, a wonderful Christian writer and thinker, I heard her recently say once that loneliness should be the one form of suffering that no Christian has to experience. That's challenging, but she's got to be right. If someone among us is lonely, that actually is the failing of all of us. Because we're called to be a family to one another. Those of us who may not have physical mothers and fathers or brothers and sisters or sons and daughters should feel that through the, the life of the local church, actually God has given us fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and, and sons and daughters. We should feel ourselves to be those things. So who in our church family can we be a son or a daughter to? and look up to and learn from and, and revere and honour? Who, who around us can we link arms with and, and be brothers to or sisters to? And who coming up after us, can we be something of a spiritual father or mother to? Who, who can we encourage and help to form in Christ, share some of our hard-won hard lessons with, Loneliness should be the one form of suffering that a Christian doesn't have to face because we should feel as though God 
actually has given us rich, rich family. So the myth that singleness will be isolating should be disproven by the life of our local church. That may be something we need to work harder on. That may not be something we can say with complete confidence yet, but it needs to be our aspiration that we would so be a body to one another, be nurturing and cultivating and celebrating friendship amongst one another, treating one another as as close family, that actually it would be unthinkable for someone among us to feel isolated, on their own, unknown, disconnected. Well, here's the final myth, and that is that singleness is a waste of our sexuality. Um, I remember speaking to somebody once and he was saying, yeah, but surely if you're single and you're not being sexually active, you're just wasting your sexuality. I mean, why is, why is God giving you this sexual desire, this sexual energy, if it's not going to be acted upon and used? Isn't that just neglecting part of how you've been created to be? It's an understandable question, but the fact is, firstly, we we can't pin every sexual urge and interest we have on God and say, well, God has created me with this particular sexual desire. It's, It's often more a reflection of our sin than our creation. But the wider point is this. The biblical vision for human sexuality is not ultimately fulfilled when we find someone we can be sexually active with. Though the biblical vision for human sexuality is actually really about Jesus and the church. I mentioned in in one of the other talks that the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve in the garden. They're, They're literally created for each other. Uh, And so that the opening act of the Bible is is a guy and a girl getting together. And the reason that is the opening of the Bible's human story is simply because it's a clue to what the whole Bible is going to be about. The man and the woman getting together becomes a picture in the whole rest of the Bible of heaven and earth getting together in Jesus. Which is the wedding the Bible ends with. Is the wedding of of Jesus and his bride, the Lamb and the church. We see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, heaven to earth, as a bride adorned for a husband. So we see wedding bells kind of being rung throughout the Bible because the Bible is ultimately about marriage, not our marriages. Our marriages are ultimately meant to be about the Bible. Uh, Paul will often use marital language to describe our relationship with Jesus. In Ephesians 5, he talks about husbands and wives and how they are to to act towards one another. And Paul eventually says, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm actually talking about Jesus and the church here. That's what you guys are meant to be modeling. Our marriages are meant to be a signpost of the gospel. Or in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Jesus says, just as the man and the wife become one flesh, We also find out that the one who joins himself to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So marriage is meant to reflect the story of the Bible. 
That helps us, I think, have a healthy view of marriage. It helps us to esteem marriage and to respect marriage without idolizing it because the glory of marriage is that it points to the ultimate marriage, which is the relationship we have with Jesus. And if it points to that, it means that the marriage we have on earth isn't actually ultimate. It's just the model of the real thing. So we can esteem marriage, we can respect marriage, we can honour marriage without being worshippers of marriage. But it also gives us a unique perspective on singleness because it means singleness along with marriage also becomes a unique way of testifying to the gospel. Jesus says there will be no human marriage in the age to come. We will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And the reason is we will have the reality. In the age to come, we will have the full, the fullness of our relationship with Jesus. We will have the reality. We will no longer need the signpost. And so by not being married now, those of us who are single can anticipate that reality and testify to its goodness. We can say to a world that is so confused about sexual and romantic companionship that actually those things are not ultimate. Jesus is. And it's, it's such a real and glorious certainty that we can live according to it even now. So that if, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. Which means we're not wasting our sexuality. The whole point actually is my sexuality is being used to keep my focus on what is to come, the ultimate union of Jesus with his people, that ultimate bliss and consummation we will experience in the age to come. For as long as my sexuality is, is keeping my eyes on that prize, it is not being wasted. I don't have to fulfill my sexual desires in order to fulfill the purpose of my sexuality. I can fulfill the purpose of my sexuality as a single person by allowing the sexual energy that God has given all of us to be a picture to me of how much I need Jesus. Not how much I need sex, but how much I need Jesus. So singleness is not a waste of your sexuality. Actually, it's a wonderful way to fulfill it because ultimately it's all about Jesus. So those are three, I think, particularly significant misconceptions that, that singleness is bad, that singleness is, is going to be isolating, and that singleness is somehow a waste of our sexuality. I hope that's enough to, to get you thinking that those misconceptions may not be very helpful and um, that the Bible gives us a, a far more positive vision of these things. It's such a blessing to, to have this time with you. Um, God bless you all and hope to see you again.